0: The second half of that sermon that my wife got for me, at least that's what Brother Wehmeyer says. Every time I preach, if if Brother Wehmeyer is there and my wife is there, Brother Wehmeyer, my wife looks forward to it, too. He'll go to her, and he'll say, that was a good sermon you got for your husband today. (laughs) And I told my wife, tell him, didn't get it from me. That one's from Joyce Myers. <laughs> oh, you'd recognize it. <laughs> hey, we sang a little while ago, Redeemed, How I love to Proclaim It. I'm, I, well, we're starting a, a, another semester in the classroom division of our Bible college, Monday night. It's coming down for tomorrow. And I'm going to be teaching on uh, soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. I'm going to be teaching on the language of salvation. And we're going to go through and cover words like uh, uh, redemption, reconciliation, um, propitiation, substitution, um, atonement, adoption, election. All the words that relate to areas of salvation. The word redeemed, we sang the song, redeemed, will proclaim it in your new redemption in the Old Testament has very little if anything to do with personal salvation the Old Testament they redeemed people they redeemed animals they redeemed land they redeemed houses the nation of Israel was redeemed I mean they got saved I mean they got delivered now, however as you get to the New Testament suddenly uh, redemption is prophesied as being personal salvation in the early Uh, Stages of our Lord's life. And that becomes entirely about personal salvation. But here's the interesting thing. You study the word redeemed. You'll find there are three different words translated redeemed or redemption in the New Testament. One of them is, and this is not important to remember, I only pronounce it for you because it makes you think I'm smart. I need all the help I can get. One of them is agarazzo. And that simply means to go into the marketplace and purchase. That's all it means. You go into the marketplace and purchase. Lay the price down for uh, a slave. The other one is ex agarazzo, has EX on the first part of it. EX is, um, it, it, it is a word that it's a compound word. EX means out of. So whereas agarazzo means you go into the marketplace. To make a purchase. You lay the money down, you made the purchase, the slave is yours. Exakarado means you go into the marketplace, you make the purchase in order to take the slave off the marketplace. And then the third word is not even related to those two words. It's lutrao. And it means to set free by payment of a ransom. When you got saved, if you're saved, when you got saved, I'd take that back. Not when you got saved. When Jesus died, he entered the marketplace of sin, and he made the purchase. He paid. He was the purchase price for your salvation. But it didn't stop there. When you got saved, he then took you out of the marketplace, no longer for sale. And then, Lutrao, uh, he turned around and set you free. Uh, you know, Paul said. We might not get the second half of this thing after some. Paul said, I'm a bond slave. I'm a slave. And the word used is the word that means a bond slave. bond slave in the Old Testament was when a, when a slave owner purchased a slave and then he, out of compassion, he let him go free. And to show that he was, uh, to, uh, you know, he, he, he could leave. But that bond slave, out of gratitude, would turn around and say, I'd like to stay. I want to serve you the rest of my life. Because I love you for setting me free. They'd back him against a tree or a post and bore a hole in his ear. Just as a sign that he was a bond slave. Now the Bible says Jesus took upon himself the form of a servant. And that's the same word for bomb slave. Jesus became everything that you and I deserve to set you free. I mean, He entered the marketplace. He not only paid the purchase price, He was the purchase price. And He bought you off the slave market. He took you out of the market and He set you free. now, Now, out of gratitude, not because you're required, out of gratitude, it's up to you to say, put the cuffs on, I'm yours. (laughs) I'm yours the rest of my life. I want to serve you. That's a voluntary thing. Uh, Anyway, I don't know how I got off on that, but it was a lot of fun. (laughs) Did you record that? I'll just play that for the class, and I won't even have to show up. I can stay home and watch Tiptoe and Tornado or something. Uh, Psalm 121. Psalm 121, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills, from whence cometh my help. The Bible talks a lot about the hills, you know, being symbolic of where God lives. Jerusalem sits on a mountain, and it's surrounded by mountains. I will lift up my eyes unto the hills, from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, he that keepeth Israel will either slumber, that means he won't even get tired, or sleep. God never goes to sleep on his children. He doesn't even get tired. I get tired. I have to fight sleep sometimes. I drive down the road. I have to fight sleep. I slap myself to fight sleep. Used to be, I don't drive that much at night anymore. If it's a long trip, I'll make a two-day journey out of it just because. Well, I'm almost Jim Waymire's age, 132. Next week. Uh, so, so at night, used to be I'd take my sh- shoes off and drive barefooted. It helped stay awake. You know, I make it smell bad in the car too, but it helped to stay awake. I don't know why I said that, but it was fun. Oh, slumber, yeah. Uh, God won't ever go to sleep on His children. He'll never even get tired. they won't even get groggy. It, God doesn't have to drink a lot of coffee to stay away. <laughs> Stop at McDonald's. You can chew that coffee. Then it says, The Lord is thy keeper in verse 5. It says in verse 6, The Lord shall preserve thee. He shall preserve thy soul. I'm skipping around for the sake of time. It says in verse 9, The Lord shall preserve thee you're going out and you're coming in. From this time forth, even forevermore. God has promised. God has... The God who cannot lie. Read Titus. He cannot lie. It's impossible for the omnipotent God to lie. The God who cannot lie, not only does not, does not would, be, would suffice, but He cannot lie. has promised. I'll preserve you forever. I'll keep you forever. Don't worry. You know what he's saying? Don't worry about it, honey. It's mine. (laughs) I'll take care of you. Heavenly Father, bless this time together this morning. Challenge our hearts, please. In every need represented in this room, in Jesus' dear name, amen. I started a message last night, and uh, I'm going to finish it tonight. Brother Weymar has never heard. Well, he wasn't listening the first time. Uh, On what to do when. And you fill in the blank. You can put anything there you want. Uh, And I told you about that church where they've gone through a tragedy with the death of their pastor. I mean, a real tragedy. Suicide. hung himself in the backyard of the church. And his daughter found him on Father's Day. Um, Just a real tragedy. And I preached this message there, thereafter. What to do when? I said, you put in. You put in. You put it in. The rest of the sentence. I preached one very similar to this to my church when I resigned after pastoring there for years. Uh, I'd resigned, and our church had a very close, close, loving pastor-people relationship. The more it was hard for me to resign, and it was really hard for them when I read the letter. And uh, they panicked. Some of them panicked, pastor. Hallelujah. They panic. So I preached on what to do when the pastor resigns. Now, with this what to do when, you can put anything in there you want, and it'll fit. Remember I said last night, from Job chapter 14, verse 1, Job is an interesting book. You ought to read it sometime. The whole thing together. I'm not just talking about the argument between the three quote-unquote friends, and then eventually Elihu and Job. I'm talking about the whole book. Job was not written to show you uh, why good people suffer. That's not the purpose of Job. The purpose of Job uh, is number one to demonstrate to the angels God's power, and number two to to um, support and reinforce the importance of the biblical account of creation. I mean, you read the you read. From the t- chapter 38 on, the time that God takes control of the conversation. After the three friends, uh, Bildad the Shuhite, that's the shortest guy in the Bible, Bildad the Shuhite. And uh, Bildad and Eliphaz and Tamal, I want to say, is that, is that it? Anyway, something similar to that. And they went back and forth in dialogue with Job two or three times each. And then uh, Elihu, who'd been standing in the shadows and not interrupting because he's just a kid, he stepped in and uh, started. Then God ended up rebuking them all, even Elihu. You read it carefully. Uh, But from chapter 38 on, God stepped in, and God didn't. God didn't make any statement. He asked 83 questions. And didn't answer one of them. And every one of them is centered around creation and supports creation. Now, in Job chapter 14 and verse 1, the dialogue between Job's three quote-unquote friends and him was getting hot. The fires were stoking. And Job inserted this question Sort of in sort of in defense of himself, man that is born of a woman. And if I if I know anything at all about genetics, that's most of us. Man that is born of a woman is a few days. Well, I, when I was a kid, I was one once. When I was a kid, I used to think fifty. I'll never reach fifty. Now that's a hundred hundreds of years away. Now, I'm seventy six, and I think. How in the world did I get here? I woke up. Uh, but it says, Man that is born of a woman is of few days. And compared to eternity, everything's a few days. And full of trouble. I mean, from day one, from day one. That's what life is. It's one trouble, one storm after the other. And remember I said this, and this is not a Bible verse, and I hope it doesn't sound too worldly. I don't intend for it to, but it does present a good picture. Life is not about waiting for the storm to pass. Life is about learning to dance in the rain. Do you get the picture? Never mind the dancing part. (laughs) Life is not about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning to cope with the storm. Life is a series of tests. God sends you through one test. If you fail that test by reacting, you'll go through it again, or something very similar. If you pass that test, that'll by responding that'll strengthen you for the next level. It's sort of like, you know, when I, our daughter grew up on the ACE program in school. That's what it's built on. A.C.E. Christian school, Christian Education Program. Uh, you, you, you have to learn a certain material in what they call a pace, and then you take a test. If you don't pass the test with a minimum eighty percent, you have to go back and repeat the pace. You get a low grade. They didn't set you under the next, like a lot of schools they didn't set you under the next group. That creates, or well, the next uh, series of material. That creates gaps in your education. They send you back, and you had to repeat it until you could pass it with an acceptable grace. That's what life is. That's a spirit of life. By the way, you and I create a lot of our problems by wrong choices. Life is a series. You are what you are right now because of the choices you've made yesterday. And you're going to be tomorrow based on the choices you made today. And the fact is, most of our problems, I'm sorry, God knows, most of our problems are self-inflicted and self-created. Not somebody else's fault. Not even, you're not going to like this, you'll probably close your mind when I say it, but well, not even your mother-in-law. I think I'm going to laugh so I will move on. Man that is born of a woman, few days are full of trouble. Now, told you I was going to give you eight things, and I gave you four yesterday. It's the only way, that and Cajun gravy, the only way to get you to come back. Uh, we said yesterday, number one, don't panic. God is still on the throne. And I say this to people, I do care, don't don't get me wrong, but I don't care what you're going through. I don't I, don't, I mean, I do care, but I don't care what it is that you're going through. God is still on the throne. Nine one one, COVID. God is still on the throne. I talked with a man recently at that church in Virginia. I told you about. He lost his ministry of the Lord fifty two years. Lost his wife to COVID. Well, they were close. She was over the school, deaf, but over the three hundred twenty students school. Lost his wife to COVID, and eight months later, his son. The pastor of the church committed suicide. He was having a hard time handling it. I got a text from him just the other day, by the way. Very encouraging. But the fact is, he's uh, learning not to panic. I don't care, care what comes your way. I don't care. Let me say it again. I don't care what comes your way. Don't panic. God, God is still on the road. And he never slumbers, and never sleeps. Then I said, examine yourself. I mean, when trouble, when any change comes your way, you know, change is designed to make you insecure, so you'll be forced to trust God and to look in His direction. When any change comes your way, examine yourself and ask yourself the question, am I a part of the problem or a part of the solution? Because if you're not a part of if you're not a part of the solution, you are the problem. So ask yourself, now examine yourself. That I said number three: don't react, respond. I illustrated it for you. A reaction is an incorrect response. If somebody jumps me in an alley with a switchblade knife in their hand, I'll probably react. Well, I might shoot them full of holes too. <laughs> But I'd probably react. However, if I were a martial arts artist, somebody jumped me, I'd respond. I'd know what to do, and I'd do it. <laughs> if somebody jumps me, you ain't never seen a 76-year-old fat man run like I'd run. <laughs> but the fact is, uh, don't react. Respond. By the way, you're not going to have the capacity to do that unless you're walking with the Lord. Walking with Vibrant Union and Fellowship. That's real. I don't mean just, you know, 15-minute conscience. These are in the morning of the Sabbath. I'm talking about a real, uh, vital union with Christ. Uh, don't react, Responded. then number four, I said, Remember that whatever it is that comes your way, it's just a part of God's plan for your life to make you more like His Son. Everything God sends your way is designed to make you more like Jesus Christ. Whether or not it will depends on you. If you react, it won't. If you respond, it will. Now, we come to number five. Thirteen-minute preview. Number five, don't let the devil make you think you're alone. I can't say this often enough, but you're not alone. I have news for you. It doesn't matter what it is. it. Let do- say it again. It doesn't matter what you're going through. Jesus, Jesus has already been there. I prove it to you. Thank you for asking. Hebrews chapter four. Turn there. Hebrews chapter four verse. Oh, that's Matthew, big dummy. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but we've got one who was in all points. you know what that means? That means in all points. That means you cannot go through anything that he has not already been there. At all points, he was tempted or tested like as we are. Yet without sin. Now, the word tempt in the Bible is an old English word that can either mean a test to get you to do good or a test to get you to do bad. If it's from the devil, it's a test to get you to do bad. We call that temptation. If it's from God, it's a test. To get you to do right. When the Bible says God tempteth no man, that's the test to get you to do bad. God won't try to get you to do bad. But it does say God tempted Abraham. He tested him to try to get him to do good. That's the difference. Now the Bible tells us here that Jesus Christ has at all points was tested just like. You know, we, we, we often read about the temptation of Christ, the test on the mountain in the wilderness. And we major on the three temptations that are, uh, that are uh, uh, expanded on for us. But you read the Mark's account. You'll find that Jesus was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. Not just three times. 40 days and 40 nights tempted. 40 That's a long time month and a half, almost. Forty, uh, and, and during that time or sometime in his life, it doesn't matter what you're going through, Jesus has been tested in that area and he passed with flying colors. You're not alone. Loneliness is one of the worst things I think there is. I mean, you know, it's just it's horrifying. Loneliness. But when you're tested, don't you let the, the devil come along and try to make you think you're alone. Jesus said, Lo, this is low, isn't it? Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age or the world. Jesus said, Lord, is in there. you're not alone. You're not alone. You're not alone. Uh, and don't let the devil make you think you by the way, Jesus is not the only one who's already been there. somebody else has already suffered what you're suffering. I mean you know I guarantee you this this stage of the game six to seven thousand years after creation of Adam and Eve somebody's already been somebody somebody's already been where you are you're not alone. Uh, the truth of the matter is, we are Johnny come lately. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, of the Bible says, Bear ye one another's burdens. Verse 5 says, Every man shall bear his own burden. Is that a contradiction? No. Verse 2 is a command Bear ye one another's burdens. Verse 5 is a statement of fact. Every man shall bear his own burden. There are no contradiction there. One's a command. One's a statement. We are commanded to bear the burdens of others. and Do our best to help shoulder that burden. But even if there's nobody around, even if you do have to bear your own burden without anybody to help or anybody who understands, keep in mind, Jesus has already been there. You're not alone. And the one who conquered that situation in his life, if you're saved, lives in you. He's your constant companion. Don't let the devil make you think you're alone. Then number six. This this ought to go without saying. Pray about everything. Worry about nothing. Pray about everything. Worry about nothing. You know, there are some concepts. The word worry is not found in the Bible. It's not a Bible word. However, the concept of worry is, there are many words we use to learn eternal security, not a Bible word, but it is a Bible doctrine. Uh, many words that we use today are not found in the Bible, but the thought or the concept is. In, uh, in, in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, Paul said, Be anxious or be careful for nothing. He's not saying don't care. He's, not say, he's saying don't be full of care. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God that passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now that's Paul's antidote to worry. Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving. If you read uh, James 4, that's the war chapter. If you read Philippians 4, that's the peace chapter. Now, there are some concepts in the Bible, a few, where God tells you not to do something. But then He turns right around and goes in the back door and tells you how to do it. And what He's doing is just using what you and I would facetiously term... Reverse psychology. For instance, in 1 John 2, 1, two sentences. The first sentence says, My little children, these things I write unto you, that ye sin not. Pretty obvious, isn't it? God writes that to tell us He doesn't want us to sin. Don't sin, period. However, in the very next sentence, it almost looks like John scratched his head and said, You know, I know better. They're going to. So it turns right around and tells you what to do when you do sin. He said, don't be discouraged about it. Just remember you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. God does that sometimes with concepts in the Bible. The worry is one of those. God commands us, be anxious, be careful for nothing. Don't worry about anything. But if you go to the Sermon on the Mount, turn there, Matthew chapter 6. It's in 5, 6, and 7. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, I've often called the Manifesto of the King, because it does have very strong millennial implications. However, Jesus is preparing His disciples primarily to face the next age that is coming up in just a short time, the church age. That tells me then that the Sermon on the Mount is instructions for our day. As well as any day. Now, if you'll read Matthew chapter 6, let's see, and you would begin with about verse 25, I think it is, you'll find that God says five or six times, Jesus says, Be careful for nothing. Be careful. Uh, uh, excuse me. Well, let me just find it. i got to read it to you or I'll get it wrong. There we are, Matthew. I was looking in alphabetical order. Matthew, beginning with verse 24. He says, take no thought. In, in 20, 25. In, in 27, he says, which of you by taking thought? In 28, he says, why take ye thought? In 31, he says, therefore, take no thought. In verse 34, therefore, take no thought. Uh, for the model shall take thought. you know that? It's not saying don't think about it. He's not saying, you know, take your brain out and lay it aside. You're not supposed to. It is not spiritual to walk around like you're the only living brain donor. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is don't overthink about something. Don't worry about something. But notice he tells you, he sort of goes, after telling us that it's a sin to worry, he goes in the back door, almost in reverse psychology, tells you how to worry. It's, it, it's like he knows you're going to. So he tells you, now oh, I have a sermon, and I'll be careful not to preach it here. Because you won't get it right now. Uh, the, the fact is, uh, he, he tells you not to worry, but then he turns, he turns around and tells you how to do it. It's like he says, I know you're going to worry. You know, when I announced that sermon, I used to tell people, I'm going to preach on uh, how to worry scripturally. Now, the fact is, I, I know some people are saying you're not supposed to worry. I understand that. But is there anybody in this room who's never worried, who never worries? No. Yeah. what I thought. So if you're going to do it, you might as well learn how to do it right. And that's the thought. That's the idea here. Notice what he says in, about worry. I don't know how this ties into my uh, message. Oh, pray about everything. Worry about nothing. Um, You'll notice that in verse 25, in essence, summarized, what he's saying is, if you're going to worry, go right ahead. But when you're worrying, just remember how powerful God is. In that verse, he compares which takes more power, to create life or to provide for life. They were worried about their next piece of clothing and their next meal, where is it going to come from? And Jesus said to them, hey, how, how dumb is it to worry? The God who gave you life. Take kind care of you. Yeah. What he's saying is, when, go ahead and worry. But when worry, just remember how powerful God is. And the second, in the next time in verses 26 and 28, he says, go ahead and worry, but uh, if you're going to, while you're worrying, just remember that God cares. God takes care of the birds, and they they don't have to sow and reap. They don't have to farm for food. My wife goes out every day, sometimes twice a day. She takes a 20-ounce cup full of bird seed. We buy it by the 50-pound bags. And she'll go out to the front porch. There will probably be a video on my phone of her uh, doing it early in the morning she'll pour that bird seed out there. And I have received strict, strict command. When I'm cleaning up the yard, leave that spot alone. And she feeds the birds. And I tell honey, look, don't worry about it. If you don't get the seed out there, God is going to take care of it. Uh, and the fact is, what he says in this passage is, Just keep in mind, if God cares for the birds, and God cares for the flowers, the lilies, in the valley, don't you know He cares more for you? You're the only thing God created in His image. So when worrying, just remember, go ahead and worry. Just remember God cares. Then He says in verse 27, when worrying, go ahead, just remember how foolish it is to worry. I mean, in verse 27, he said, "Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit? That's about 18 inches to a stature." Let me explain that to you. The Jews were under Roman dominion. The whole part of the world was at this time. Romans are usually tall. They aren't any really tall Jews. Jews, as a as a rule, are very short people. Does anybody here know of one single Jew who has ever played on the NBA? As a rule, they're very short people. And the Jews didn't like to be controlled by the Romans to begin with, but when a Roman soldier came up and told them looked down and told them what to do, and the Jew had to look up, it was intimidating, and they worried about it. And Jesus says to them, Do you really think by worrying you're going to add 18, not one, 18 inches to your stature? He's telling them, Go ahead and worry. But just remember when you do, how foolish you are to worry. Then in the next passage, I believe it was down to verse 30. Well, let's go to verse 34. He says, when worrying, go ahead, but don't worry about tomorrow, just today. Don't worry about tomorrow. Uh, take no fault for the marrow. He's already said, take no fault, take no fault, take no fault. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Now he said, don't worry about tomorrow you know, don't to worry straight to the day. Don't worry about it. I've news for you. Tomorrow I may never come. Why worry about it? Uh, well, I, I was sitting at lunch one time after a conference we had preached in with. Dr. Howells was sitting on the other side of the lunch table. And uh, he said to me, Brother Tully, I want to make this short. And he said, Doc, he here's what I do for, for worry. He said, I set aside Thursdays from 1.30 in the afternoon for an hour or two to worry. That's my worry time. He said, uh, if anything comes up any other time of the week to worry about, I don't worry about it. I carry a notebook, and he showed me the notebook, a little spiral thing. He said, I write it down in here, and I close the book. I don't open it again until the next thing comes up to worry that I need to listen. I put it back in my pocket. Then he said, on Thursday. My worry time comes. Open that book. That's my time to sit in my office and worry. So I open that book, and I go, and he says, "You know, brother, told totally me nine out of ten of those things never did happen, and the other ten percent worrying would only compound it." So he said, "I don't worry." That's a pretty good practical application, I guess. But here is what he said in, in, in that passage. When worrying, only worry don't worry about tomorrow. Hey, don't worry about tomorrow. Worry if you're going to worry, if you're determined to, just worry about today. And then he says, in essence, in verse thirty three, when worrying, get involved in something important. You'll realize how foolishness it is when you get involved. Seek ye first. That's first in time and first in importance. The kingdom of God and His righteousness. What is that? Well, basically that's winning souls to Christ. Uh, uh, you know, the business of Jesus Christ. Get involved in His business. Hey, how does that apply to what we're talking about this morning? Pray about everything. Worry about nothing. When trouble comes your way, pray about it. When you pray about it, take it off your shoulders. Test it at His feet. It's not your problem anymore. It's His. And He's promised to keep you and preserve you. So don't worry about it. You know, That's basically what we tell our people, isn't it? Don't worry about it. Now, it sounds like you're, you know, throwing it off. But you're not. It's good advice. Uh, pray about everything. Worry about nothing. Number seven, quickly. Confess the sin of not trusting God. And apologize to any you might have, you might have offended or wronged by reacting. Confess to God your sin of not trusting Him, and stop to think about it. If you've wronged anybody by reacting, apologize to them. We confess our sins to God. We confess our faults. Faults—that's a different word altogether—to one another. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Why did He say faithful and just? Faithfulness and justice do not forgive. Love forgives. Pity forgives. Compassion forgives. Love doesn't uh, uh, faithfulness. If I got what I faithfully and justly deserved, I'd be in hell with gasoline britches on so why did John say, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive? I'll tell you why. Because he made the promise that if you confess, I'll forgive. Now, he's faithful to keep his promise, and he's just not to exact from you a payment already made by his Son. One tell So he's faithful, if we confess our sins, faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then after you've confessed, if you have offended anybody, I mean, maybe you got the run-up-the-mountain disease, and you are, are in a heat or height of emotion, emotions, you offended somebody else, go to them. Go to them. Go to them. And uh, make things right with them. apologize. So number number seven is confess the sin of not trusting God and then apologize to anybody you might have offended by reacting. Then number eight, this might be the most important. I used to say, make Jesus Christ the Lord of your circumstance. I have news for you; He's Lord. You don't make Him anything. Whether you make it, whether you submit to His lordship or not, He is Lord. We say, God make Jesus Lord of your life. I understand what we mean? We all slip and say it once in a while. But he is Lord, whether you make him anything or not. So I don't say it that way now. I've got it crossed out, Lord crossed out, and the word captain put in there. Make Jesus the captain of your circumstance. Jesus said, why call ye me Lord, Lord? But you don't do what I say. That's like an oxymoron. In uh, Mark chapter 4, and it's also in Matthew 8, more detail given Mark 4. There's an account where Jesus and the disciples got on a ship, a boat. And they went out. They embarked out into the sea. And a storm arose. And the disciples were fighting the storm. The Bible says the waves came over the ship and filled the ship up. What happens when you fill a ship up with water? It goes down. And they were fighting for their life. All except Jesus. Jesus had contacted Mike Lindell on his cell phone and got a hold of him, mypillow.com, and he was on the bottom of the boat sleeping on that pillow. And when they were just about to go under, those distraught disciples went down and shook him and woke him up and said, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And Jesus arose. And he held up his hand and he stilled the storm. Peace, be still. And miraculously, the wind quit, the clouds rolled back, the sun shined, and the water was as smooth as rippling glass. Now, let me give you two applications for that. Number one, when the storm arose, Jesus arose. Huh? He might be in the background of... Of your life. If he is, it's because you put him there. You crowded him out. But he might be in the background. But I will guarantee you, even then, when the storm arises, don't you worry about it, he'll arise. However, notice, notice, he didn't get up until they decided he's not going to be cargo in our ship. He's going to be captain. I'll tell you, when Jesus arises to help you through your storm. It's when you decide he's not going to be cargo. I'm not just going to tow him around in my heart. He's going to be captain. And there's a world of difference. There's a world of difference. Storms in your life will reveal who the captain is. Whether well, you realize it or not, it's the captain who orders the course. It's the captain who's already inspected the ship. It's the captain who steers the ship. So if you head into a storm, it's because he's it in there. It's the captain who knows the course. It's the captain who assures your safety and the safety of all aboard. It's the captain who controls the ship's destiny. As long as you're content that Jesus should just be there, cargo, as long as he's just cargo, you're going to have difficulty in the storm. You're going to have fear. Fear will control you. But you make him captain. And don't wait, by the way, by the way, when a storm comes, too late to elect the captain then. You make him captain of your life. Captain. Captain. The Bible says in Titus two fourteen, we are a peculiar people. The Bible says in First Peter two nine, we are a peculiar people. Watch me, class. Peculiar does not mean wobbly on the shaft. Peculiar is a two-part word. The first part is illustrated by a dot on a piece of paper. The second part is illustrated by a complete and perfect circle surrounding the dot. On that paper, absolutely nothing, nothing can get to the dot without the permission of the circle. Had to break the circle and get through. In the application, you are the dot. God, not the angels, God is the circle. Absolutely nothing, I don't care what it is, can touch you but what God either directly or indirectly sends it. He either sends it directly or He allows it. He's the circle. And there's no circumstance, there's no circumstance, period, that can, can break that circle without His permission. I'll tell you a story and then I'm finished. In 1932... There was a pastor in Mississippi, this is a true story. Nineteen thirty two, Mississippi. His name was A M, initials A. M. Overton. Pastor of a Little Country Baptist Church. He was a young preacher. He had a, a beautiful wife and three small, adorable children. His wife got present with their four uh, pregnant with their well, present too, with their fourth child. Late into the pregnancy, complications developed. When it came time to take the baby. The mother died, and the baby died. Leaving Pastor Overton as a widow with three small children to raise by himself. Time came for the funeral. They had two: a baby casket and an adult casket up front. Pastor Overton sat over here on this side in the front. Not another preacher officiate the service. service lasted about 45 minutes or so. They sang a song or two and had a special number or two, and then the, then the, the officiating minister got up to preach. The, the, the minister who officiated the service said he noticed that all during the entire service, even the 30 minutes of preaching, not one single time did Overton look up at him not one single time did Overton even raise his head to look at the caskets. All during the entire service, he sat there with a loose piece of paper in front of him, writing. He'd write and then he'd stop. Then he'd write and then he'd stop. Then he'd write and then he'd stop. Then he'd write, then he'd stop. Forty-five minutes. Not one time did he look up to face the officiating minister or the caskets. After the service family sat over there and the pastor stood down here at the head of the caskets and people came by to say their quote unquote last goodbyes and uh, then the officiating minister went over to where Overton was sitting said Brother Overton he said um, you have my condolences he said I want to ask you a question he said all during the service not one time did you look up at the caskets nor at me even while I was preaching not one time you sat there writing on that piece of paper. So my curiosity got the best of me. Tell me. What were you writing? And Overton handed him the piece of paper. That, that, that widowed father of three small children. Handed him the piece of paper and here's what the paper said. My father's way may twist and turn. My heart that's part But in my soul, I'm glad I know he maketh no mistake. My cherished plans may go astray. My hopes may fade away. But still I'll trust my Lord to lead. For he doth know the way. Though night be dark, and it may seem that day will never break, I'll pin my faith, my all, in him who maketh no mistake. There's so much now I cannot see. My eyesight's far too dim. Yet come what may, I'll simply trust and leave it all to Him. For by and by the mist will lift, and plain it all He'll make. Through all the way, though dark to me, He made not one mistake. Bow with me, please, for prayer. Let's stand. Heads bowed, eyes closed. I do care. But I don't care what you're going through or what circumstance has hit your life or will hit your life. Your Father knows how much you can care.